Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Without Chuck Berry, there is no rock and roll. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. This week, we remember the life, music, and legacy of the pioneering guitarist, songwriter, and rock and roll legend, Chuck Berry. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and uh, typically at this time of year, we are doing our South by Southwest Music Conference wrap-up from Austin, Texas. Jim and I just returned from there, and we will do that show in in another week. But uh, even bigger news uh, this week to talk about uh, the death of Chuck Berry. Uh, It is not an overstatement to say that he is one of the, if not the, key figure in the evolution of rock and roll in the 20th century. Uh, a figure that ranks up there with uh, a stylus along the lines of Louis Armstrong, who played a key role in the invention of jazz, or Bill Monroe in bluegrass, Thomas Dorsey in gospel, W.C. Handy in blues. Uh, Chuck Berry played a similar role in the way rock and roll evolved. There is rock and roll such as we knew it before Chuck Berry and then after. Not only as a singer and performer, he was a great, great showman, but as a guitar player, uh, influencing every guitar player, every electric guitar player who ever picked up the instrument afterward, and most of all, as a songwriter, the subject matter of those songs influencing the way rock and roll was viewed as a music of freedom. And also as the leader of a small combo that played an up-tempo blend of blues and country with a heavy backbeat. Virtually every rock and roll band that has been invented ever since has followed the format uh, that Chuck Berry ingrained in our consciousness in the 1950s. Chuck Berry died on March 18th. He was 90 years old. He was at home in uh, the St. Louis suburb of Wentzville. Uh, Hopefully what we will do in this hour of Sound Opinions is dig a lot deeper into the life and the legacy of one of the most important musicians in the history of rock and roll. I'll offer some insights. He was born 1926 into a middle-class family in St. Louis, uh, an African-American neighborhood called The Ville. Uh, he's the fourth of six children, and his dad is a contractor and a deacon at the Baptist Church. His mother is a uh, public school principal, which I think is really ironic considering Mm -hmm. how much Chuck will later sing about school days. First public performance, 1941, while he's at uh, Sumner High School, and then he goes to jail for the first time. Uh, Chuck has a troubled life and four notable run-ins with the law, and we will discuss that later because it cannot be avoided. It's part of the man's story. He turns to music fairly late in life, 27, 28 years old. 
He's out of prison. Uh, he's married. He has a family. He's, for all intents and purposes, a, a grown man. Uh, he has gone to uh, the Poro College of Cosmetology. He's a cosmetician mm-hmm. or a beautician. Uh, he's all set. But then he catches the musical bug. Early 1953, he begins performing with a trio led by Johnny Johnson, an incredibly talented piano player who was a key part, often overlooked, of the Chuck Berry story. Berry takes over this trio led by Johnny Johnson, makes it his own, plays around St. Louis quite a bit, and for reasons that still remain unclear, even if you've read his biography, he thinks he can do more. He goes to Chicago in 1955. Muddy Waters, a a blues hero, makes the introduction to Leonard Chess, the uh, main fellow at Chess Records. And over the next 10 or 15 years, Chuck records an extraordinary series of hits for Chess Records. An incredibly fruitful period that is broken up in the middle by another stint in jail. For all intents and purposes, though, after Chuck leaves Chess and signs up with Mercury Records, his career is is pretty much over. Mm. The only number one pop hit of his lifetime comes in the early 70s with My Ding-A-Ling, nobody's favorite Chuck Berry song, although, like I said, it was number one hit. And then he really kind of stops recording, but will play over the remaining four decades of his life in pickup bands uh, as an oldies act for cash. There is some indication that he was going to be celebrated again as a recording artist because his first album in four decades of new material uh, was coming, uh, is coming. It will be released on June 16th. It's called Chuck, but Chuck died before its release. As I said, 90 years old, March 18th in Wentzville, Missouri. So to get the historical perspective on Chuck Berry and where he fits in those years that gave birth to rock and roll, we have our old friend Greg, Ed Ward from Austin, Texas. Ed's uh, book came out in November, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Ed. Ah, Good to be here. We thought it would be particularly uh, useful to have you on to put Chuck Berry in some perspective because those records uh, really set the rock and roll template. I think everyone agrees for that. Uh, But they didn't come out of a vacuum. So give us some perspective on Mr. Berry. Well, I mean, he he was a middle-class black kid in um, the suburbs of St. Louis um, who grew up idolizing... T-Bone Walker and um, uh, Louis Jordan. And uh, had this idea of um, doing songs with narrative. Uh, Although most of the work when he first started playing guitar that was available was blues work. It's very interesting that the first recording session he ever played was Calypso uh, from some, I don't know, some guy in St. Louis who thought he was a Calypso artist. I left Trinidad a few years ago And the shrimp and rice that I love so Had to cut the boat for USA Maria, she ran me away But one thing that Calypso is real good on is social commentary and narrative. So that idea was planted in his head. New Jersey Turnpike in the wee-wee hours I was rolling slow because of drizzling showers Yeah, come up flat top, he was moving up with me Then come waving goodbye in a little old suit 
hooked up jitney I put my foot in my tank And I began to roll Moaning siren towards the state patrol So I let What's out really interesting, though, is that Chuck Berry was actually kind of old when he first started going. I mean, he was born in 1926, and Maybelline was 1955, um, which would have made him 29 years old. He must have had the idea that teenage kids were worth writing to and about, and yet I'm not sure how much of his own experience he was using to uh, to do that. But after he had a couple of hits, he really did zone in on the teenage experience, which obviously he was getting to observe now at first hand by doing all the touring and, and so forth that he was doing. You know, I'm almost grown. Yeah, and I'm doing all right in school. They ain't said I broke no rules. I ain't never been in Dutch. I don't browse around too much. Don't bother me, leave me alone. Anyway, I'm almost grown. I don't run around with no mob. There was an interview he did for Rolling Stone with uh, Mark Jacobson where, where he, he said, I saw that uh, the white audience was nine cents out of every dime. And it's true. <laughs> he, uh, his records sold more on the pop charts than they did on the R&B charts. You know, I'd interviewed Johnny Johnson a few times, uh, and he would, he would say that uh, people thought before they actually saw Chuck Berry that he was white. Um, right. And, and at, at the um, clubs that they would play, um, even uh, the African-Americans would be um, doing country dances to uh, the songs that Chuck was playing uh, because of uh, some of the rhythmic elements in the guitar that he was bringing. It wasn't just a blues feel, but there was also a, a pronounced country feel to it. I'm going to give you 30 days to get back home I done called up a gypsy woman on the telephone I'm going to send out a worldwide hoodoo That'll be the very thing that'll suit you I'm going to see that you'll be back home do you uh, buy the notion um, that has been handed out? You, you hear a lot in the last few days, you know, Chuck Berry invented rock and roll. How far do we take that? Nobody invented rock and roll. If you look at it, it's clearly a collective invention by a whole bunch of people working on a given, I wanted to say, problem uh, at, at, at the same time and coming up with very similar results. I mean, you find this happening all the time in mathematics and science. Um, and this is even more complicated than mathematics or science because <laughs> it's the human soul, as it were. So, um, you know, nobody did the first rock and roll record. Nobody did the template for rock and roll. That's just not possible. Who are the major suspects, though, preceding Barry? Who do you see Barry taking from? I mean, you mentioned Louis Jordan, T-Bone Walker, but clearly, uh, you know, there's a before and after with, with Chuck Berry in, in terms of how this music evolved. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the format, you know, a guitar-led combo, uh, writing, you know, working with original songs by the, by the leader of that band. I, I think that was fairly unprecedented at that point. I know there were other models. There was the, there was the Chicago blues model. Sure. Which was a guitar-led band, you know, Muddy Waters. It was Muddy who uh, brought Chuck Berry to uh, Chess Records. It's all right, it's all right. 
I think he saw something there that was not competition because Muddy was always very, very uh, aware of competition. He, he thought this was a, a guy who, uh, who had something that nobody else had. Ike Turner, uh, to some extent, ha- had this going on with the Kings of Rhythm. B.B. Um, King had it going on, but, but none of them had this narrative thing, and none of them had the teenage focus. I think mm. th- those were the two things that were important. Let's talk just a little bit about the guitar playing. You mentioned uh, you know, the narrative and, and, and the subject matter the teens uh, being central to the evolution of, of where the music was going through the music of Chuck Berry. But the guitar playing, too, I think was, you know, ground zero for so many subsequent guitars. What was different about how Chuck Berry played the electric guitar? It uses the intrinsic nature of the electric guitar uh, and the way it sounds through an amplifier uh, as, as a very basic component of what it is. You know, the, the guitar was not a big instrument during the 1950s. The, the idea of a guitar fronting a band, a guitar hero, um, was pretty much limited to, uh, to blues, at least until surf music came along, and that wasn't until 61, 62. So the idea of, of a lead guitar was fairly new, and it was, Chuck Berry was one of the very few people whose guitar had a voice that was integral to each one of his compositions. We've been talking to Ed Ward about Chuck Berry. He's the author of The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 through 1963. Ed, thanks for uh, talking about Chuck with us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Greg, for much of the rest of the show, we are going to dive deep into some of Chuck Berry's songs and use those to illuminate different aspects of his career. I have to start at the beginning with Maybelline. It's uh, 1955, his first release for Chess Records, his first big hit. It did not come, uh, none of Chuck's music did, from a vacuum. In 1938, Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys, masters of country swing, recorded uh, this song originally. It's a fiddle tune, western swing record called Ida Red. Chicken in the bread tray, packing out dough, granny with your dog bite, no child, no. Hurry up, boys, and don't fool around. Grab your partner and truck on down. Ida Red, Ida Red, I'm plumb fool about Ida Red. You know, it's interesting, Greg, that from the beginning, uh, this song had an appeal that went far beyond the, the, the narrow genre audience. Wills has said that Ida Red was his favorite song to perform in the Salt and Pepper Clubs. By that, he meant the racially integrated clubs. There weren't many, mm-hmm. but the few that were that had both black and white audiences, he would play this song. So, Barry is in St. Louis. He has taken over the poor Johnny Johnson trio. He's leading this. He comes to Chicago in 55. He uh, admires the blues musicians, especially Muddy Waters. Muddy makes the introduction to Leonard Chess. Uh, Chuck Berry has a couple of demos. Chuck thinks Leonard's going to be interested in the blues tracks, uh, but Leonard responds to 
Ida Red slash Ida May. He says, Leonard Chess, this is a hillbilly song sung by a black man. I can make money with that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. They up the beat in the recording studio. It gets amped up. Chuck has changed the lyrics. It becomes Maybelline. Um, it's essentially the story of a girl and a boy and two cars, a Cadillac Coupe de Ville and uh, a V8 Ford. Uh, Maybelline is driving the Coupe de Ville. Uh, she's got more speed. But in the end, uh, the boy catches up at the top of a hill and the song ends. We don't know what's going on. The girl, Maybelline, has been cheating on the boy. Uh, Maybelline, why can't you be true? Uh, it's not spelled out. Uh, she apparently was cheating on him, stepping out. He's trying to catch up to her. All right, that is the whole song. But the way the guitar and the drums uh, move this tune, uh, something you really hadn't heard in rock and roll before, it, you feel like you are speeding. It is not one of the great great narrative songs that Barry will record. Those will come later. This is just him warming up. But what a great debut. Uh, when it comes out, it becomes an R&B hit on the black charts. Um, I think Chuck Berry's as surprised as anyone that this record takes off, Greg. Uh, here he is in 2000 talking to NPR about hearing Maybelline on the radio. I flew home, you know, about 20 blocks from home and told everybody, and I heard it, I heard it, I heard it, I heard me sing, and I, these are relatives, these are people who live on the block. So that was the first time I heard it, that day. Nice sunny day, beautiful day. Knocked me out to hear myself, you know. What a song. Maybelline by Chuck Berry on Sound Opinion. It doesn't get any better than that. Maybelline by Chuck Berry, recorded May 21st, 1955. After a short break, we're going to continue our discussion on the life of Chuck Berry and dig into more of his classic singles. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're looking into the life, legacy, and music of the late, great Chuck Berry. We're looking at some of his greatest songs, and the next one I want to look at is School Day, 1957, Jim. I think this is where he really starts articulating his vision of what rock and roll is and what it meant to him. Uh, this was the music of freedom for Chuck Berry. This is, my, this is my way of communicating with the world. This is the way of declaring myself a free man in this country uh, when I don't always feel like that when I walk down the street or I'm on tour. Uh, School Day, uh, you know, it, it comes under this you know, kind of innocent uh, rubric of, you know, the day-to-day affairs of, of, of a student going through, yeah. you, know, cl- you know, class to class. And ring, it's kind ring, of a mundane thing. Yeah, you got to go to class, right. And there's the rhythm of that day, day after day after day. But, of course, you are waiting for that clock to, you know, strike the end of the school day so that you, you're emancipated. Uh, so a deep metaphor here about what it felt like to be Chuck Berry in 1957. And by extension, uh, speaking to a, a generation of teenagers who were related to every word. Because Chuck Berry was enunciating his words so perfectly. He was yeah. a guy who wanted to be understood. He, he placed a great deal of value in those words. He talked about how, how uh, he disliked the slurred diction of many of the blues artists. Even though he admired them, he wanted to be heard. So right away in School Day, Jim, he's saying, Hail, hail, rock and roll. This declaration of this is the music that is going to set us free. Deliver me from the days of old. There, that is a multi-tiered message right mm-hmm. there. Here's a guy who grew up in a, you know in a racist society, and this is saying basically this is we're turning a new chapter here, and it begins. Uh, with this music, this is the music that's going to help set us free. His grandparents were slaves. Yes, I mean, here's a man who's coming out of a, a tradition that's that's pretty uh, dire, and 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 making a new world, uh, literally on those records that he was creating. The call and response between Chuck's voice and his guitar, uh, it cannot be overstated. Uh, that, that guitar was his second voice, and you can really hear that dialogue here in School Day. Ring, ring goes the bell, and the guitar answers. Yeah. This is the sound of freedom. This is Chuck Berry's School Day on Sound Opinions. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pay Working your fingers right down to the bone And the guy behind you won't leave you alone Ring, ring goes the bell The cook in the lunchroom's ready to sell You're lucky if you can find a seat You're fortunate if you have time to eat Back in the classroom, open your books Keep it, the teacher don't know how mean she looks rolls around You finally lay your burden down Close up your books, get out of your seat Down the halls and into the street Up to the corner and round the bend Right to the juke joint you go in Drop the coin right into the slot You gotta hear something that's really hot With the one you love, you're making romance All day long you've been wanting to dance Feeling the music from head to toe Round and round and round you go Ring, 
School Day from 1957, a classic from Chuck Berry, a great run of amazing songs during this era, Jim. Greg, what we're trying to do with this Chuck Berry show is uh, is highlight the man's music and aspects that people uh, may take so for granted that they forget about it. Um, you know, Chuck was someone who wanted to be an artist. My favorite quote from him was, I grew up thinking art was pictures until I got into music and found out I was an artist and didn't paint. Um, you know, a decade before the Velvet Underground appears under the rubric of Andy Warhol with his uh, cover art and says this is rock as art, Chuck was already thinking in those terms. Roll Over Beethoven, a 1956 hit single, is saying that. It was saying a lot of things, right? You've got a crazy partner, you got to see him reel and rock. The number of times he uses the words rock or rock and roll in his singles. It's extraordinary. He is claiming this music. He did not invent it as we went over with Ed Ward. There were a lot of paths uh, converging at once to produce rock and roll. But he gave it uh, a quality of uh, we are in this together. This is a new sound, and I think it's art. Um, the story goes that his sister, one of his sisters, uh, monopolized the piano in the family living room. She was always playing her classical piano lesson music, so he couldn't get to the piano. Uh, that's fortuitous. He picks mm-hmm. up the guitar. But he is familiar with Beethoven. He is familiar with Tchaikovsky. And if you look at the lyrics of Roll Over Beethoven, you know, Roll Over Beethoven, tell Tchaikovsky the news, um, he is simultaneously referencing uh, art that he thinks is as important and equal to Beethoven and Tchaikovsky. He name-checks early in the morning, title of a Louis Jordan Mm -hmm. song, that uh, jazz progenitor that influenced him strongly. He mentions blue suede shoes. Carl Perkins appear that uh, that he likes, which is rare. He doesn't speak very highly of many of his peers in the fifties, um, and the "Hey Diddle Diddle" part uh, from the you know the Cat and the Fiddle um, is said to reference Bo Diddley because both the kind of uh, syncopation of "Hey Diddle Diddle Cat and the Fiddle," right, and also Bo was a violin player before he picked up that uh, you know phenomenal uh, rectangular guitar mm-hmm. that is pure Bo Diddley. So he's positing rock and roll as art in 1956 and I, I just I just think it's brilliant. The other thing is the Barry attitude. Sly, sarcastic, risque. You know he's telling a dirty joke even when it's not obvious. Um, conspiratorial, a wink and a nod. It's us against them, baby. It's the clued in uh, versus the squares. It's the young, at least at heart, Mm -hmm. versus the old timers. It's the rebels versus the conservatives. I'm going to play the studio, the chess uh, recording of Rollover Beethoven, but listen to this late 50s televised performance. Look it up on YouTube. It's extraordinary. The way he introduces the track, and and he's clearly putting everybody on, uh, talking to those of us who will get the joke and trying to tick off those who won't. As a matter of fact, uh, a relished memory in my mind he was, and a good musician, might I say so. Uh, This man was uh, named Beethoven. No, he was named Beethoven. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask him to forgive us. Roll over and listen to a little of this.
local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record. I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven. I gotta hear it again today. You know my temperature rising. The jukebox blowing a fuse. My heart beating rhythm and my soul keep a singing the blues. I roll over Beethoven. Tell Tchaikovsky the news. I got the rockin' pneumonia, I need a shot of rhythm and blues. I caught the rolling off the writer sitting down at a rhythm review. I roll over Beethoven, they rockin' in two by two. Well, if you feel it and like it, go get your lover, then reel and rock it. Roll it over, then move on up, just a trifle further, then reel and rock with. Run another roll over Beethoven, dig these rhythm and blues. Chuck Berry from 1956. This is art and take that, Ludwig. <laughs> exactly. You know, the art form of songwriting. You said so well, Jim. Um, Chuck Berry was the guy who got there first in terms of rock and roll songwriting, creating art out of rock and roll songs. A great example of that is Memphis, which he wrote in 1959. Um, this is a song that has a very mature theme to it, and a very sophisticated lyric. Uh, it is said that Chuck Berry spent uh, a month working on the verses in this song uh, to get it just right because it had a particular tone and a particular delivery that was different from some of the material that he was recording around this time. Yes, there was a lot of music uh, directed at teens. This music was clearly directed at an older audience in some ways. It, it is the, it is the uh, young adult who has had experiences in the world. We find out in this song sort of verse by verse, exactly what he's talking about. Uh, It's basically a one-sided conversation between the narrator in the song and a telephone operator, and he's pouring out his heart to this telephone operator. (laughs) He's expressing that he's missing this girl named Marie and that they're being kept apart by Marie's mother. We find that out after a while. And in the final verse, we finally find out who Marie is. She's, in fact, the six-year-old daughter of the narrator, and that the mother has left their home and took Marie with her, and he misses uh, his daughter. And he's trying to find her. He misses the daughter. He's trying to find that number where his daughter called from so that he can actually hear her voice for himself. And it's a beautifully written song. Not only the way he sort of saves the the, the ending, you know, uh, but the girl's cheeks covered in hurry home drops at the end. I mean, what an image that is, because the girl, the daughter, misses her father just as much as the father misses the daughter, and they're feeling this across this long-distance connection that is never to be. Uh, The plaintive lyric, the plaintive delivery, the way Chuck's playing his guitar, we're seeing a songwriter, uh, you know, growing before our eyes and ears in the 50s. Here's Memphis from Chuck Berry in 1959 on Sound Opinions. Give me Memphis, Tennessee Help me find the party Try to get in touch with me She could not leave her number But I know who placed the call Cause my uncle took the message And he wrote it on the wall Help me information Get in touch with my Marie She's the only Tennessee. Her home is on the south side, high up on 
Memphis from Chuck Berry in 1959 on Sound Opinions. We'll look into the later years of Chuck Berry's career in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. But we also want to hear your thoughts on the rock and roll icon. What did Chuck Berry mean to you? What are the musical standouts from his career in your book? Leave us a message for the air at 888-859-1800. Help me information more than that I cannot add. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we are looking at the life, legacy, and music of Chuck Berry. And uh, Jim, you and I are going to talk about uh, one more song each from Chuck Berry's vast discography. We, we could do dozens. Oh, absolutely. But I really, really want to talk about Brown on Handsome Man, which he released in 1956. But a song like Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, uh, that was a pioneering song in, in terms of the subject matter. It's a, it's a very sly and daring commentary on race relations at a time when uh, those kind of things weren't generally welcome. A decade on the radio. before the fruition yes. of the civil rights movement. That's right. So as an as a African-American gentleman uh, who was now touring extensively around America, you know, he'd seen some things in, in, in the southern states, certainly. And this song is based on an incident he witnessed outside a concert uh, that he was playing in California, uh, where he saw a Hispanic man being handcuffed by the police and a woman ran up screaming uh, for the police to let him go. Uh, so he took that little image and, and transferred it into this amazing song about the African-American experience uh, in, in, in America. You know, certainly, let, let's widen that out a little bit. People of color in the United States, a non-Caucasian man, a brown-eyed man, yeah. was basically his way of saying non-Caucasian. You know, it never direct, because uh, the original line in Johnny B. Good was a colored boy, and he changes it to country boy. Right. He never wanted to be too specific talking about race. There was a little bit of a code going on, but anybody who was paying attention uh, realized what the, what the implications were. And, and this song is, uh, it begins, it, it, it hits you right between the eyes from the get-go. Uh, the brown-eyed handsome man is arrested, basically, for having for the crime of having no job. So it, it's, it's this whole idea of, you know, who's getting jobs, who's, who's employed, who is considered worthy of of uh, working in the in, in America, uh, and expands it into this sort of heroic portrait. Uh, you know, there's there, there's art references in this song. The Venus de Milo lost her arms because she was so impassionately in love with the brown-eyed handsome man. And there's a reference to you know the breaking the color line in in uh, Major League Baseball. Mm, um, Jackie there, Robinson. There's a baseball hero running the bases at the end, hitting the game-winning home run. A clear reference to uh, Jackie Robinson uh, breaking the color barrier. Uh, 
you know, a decade earlier in, in Major League Baseball. So he's writing this song from a, a very much a perspective of who he is. So we hear, we, we, we see these songs about teenagers, um, you know, fighting the man and going up against institutions, not liking school. Um, and, and, and coming out the victors. Now we transfer that to race relations and the brown-eyed handsome man, this heroic figure fighting against impossible odds. Brown-eyed handsome man from Chuck Berry in 1956 on Sound of Things. Arrested on charges of unemployment, he was sitting in the witness stand. The judge's wife called up the district attorney. She said, free that brown-eyed man. If you want your job, you better free that brown-eyed man. Flying across the desert in a TWA, I saw a woman walk across the sand. She'd been walking 30 miles en route to Bombay to meet a brown-eyed handsome man. Her destination was a brown-eyed handsome man. Way back in history, 3,000 years, in fact, ever since the world began. There's been a whole lot of good women shedding tears over a brown-eyed handsome man. It's a lot of trouble with a brown-eyed handsome man. Handsome man, Chuck Berry, addressing the civil rights era in 1956 on Sound Opinions. Jim, what have you got as a final Chuck Berry song that you'd like to play? Uh, Greg, I really want to dive deep into You Never Can Tell, but first I have to provide some history. We said uh, earlier we'd mentioned Chuck's unfortunate brushes with the law. The first was uh, when he was a teenager, uh, carjacking, essentially. Uh, He claims the gun he would point in people's faces was unloaded. He does some time in reform school. Then uh, I think most people realize this. The middle of his chess period is broken up by him spending uh, about half of a three-year sentence in prison for violating the Mann Act transporting an underage uh, girl across state lines for, this is the law, quotes, immoral purposes. He was convicted of that first. The conviction was overturned because the judge made racist comments. There had been an earlier brush with the Mann Act with a legal age woman, and then he does time in prison. He comes out uh, and begins recording for chess again, and that's the period that yielded the song I'm going to talk about there was one more stay in jail. In July 1979, Barry performs at the White House for President Jimmy Carter, who's a huge fan. Three days later, he begins serving 120 days in federal prison and four years probation for income tax evasion. When you demand a suitcase full of cash before any gig you will play, and then you don't pay taxes on it, You get get in trouble. You get in trouble. Uh, The last bout, uh, infamously, with legal troubles was in the 1990s. Police raided his home outside St. Louis, found uh, marijuana and videotapes uh, that he had filmed in a club he owned uh, where he placed video cameras in the women's restrooms. Uh, You know, Chuck and his legal problems, I, I think a big part of the reason... His uh, death was was honored and commemorated, but not 
with the tears that greeted, uh, you know, David Bowie just last year, right? Or Prince, is there was a lot of controversy in his background. Sure, extremely complicated life. And it's a disturbing legacy. Um, as I said, he does his second stint in prison because of the Mann Act violations. Uh, he comes out and he begins recording again for chess in 1962. So the first run of hits is 55 through when he goes to prison, 62 into the early 70s. Uh, there are some great songs. No particular place to go. One of his greatest guitar riffs. Nadine. Mm -hmm. Nadine, I think he's even fonder of than Maybelline, the way he sings her name. Uh, and the song I'm going to talk about, You Never Can Tell. Say la vie, say the old folks, you never can tell. This is one of those great short stories in a song. Chuck is talking about a couple in New Orleans, uh, a Creole couple, apparently. They don't have any money. All of the uh, elders tell them they're foolish to get married. It's not going to work out. You, you, you have no prospects. You have no money. But it does work out. All they need to be happy are, quote, 700 little records, all rock, rhythm, and jazz. But when the sun goes down, the rapid tempo of the music falls. <laughs> all, right. all right. They're in love. And that's getting them through. Um, I think this underscores a key point that I want to make about Barry. We've talked about, uh, you know, the race relations aspect. We've talked about the music being so innovative. Greg, I think his secret was the second person plural pronoun. When Nirvana sang in Smells Like Teen Spirit, here we are now, entertain us. We are stupid and contagious. Barry is constantly singing about us as a group. At this point, after prison, he's in his early 30s. He's not a teenager, but he sings about us, us teens, we, us in this together. As I said earlier, it's the hips versus the squares. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the rebels versus the conservatives. He's one of us. We are with him. And that sort of unity in a song like, hey, say the old folks, you, you never can tell. Don't listen to them. <laughs> listen to us. It's a kind of inclusion uh, that hadn't been heard, I think, in rock and roll, because uh, he got there first, and that it endures to this day. You Never Can Tell by Chuck Berry. Uh, big hit in 1964 on Sound Opinions. It was a teenage wedding and the old folks wished him well. You could see that Pierre did truly love the mademoiselle. And now the young monsieur and madame have rung the chapel bell. Cherry Red 53 And drove it down to Orleans To celebrate the anniversary It was there where Pierre was waiting 
Never Can Tell, a big hit for Chuck Berry in the early 60s, comes back, Greg, many years later as a key song in Pulp Fiction, yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Um, and by that point, it's pretty much over, right? You know, after my ding in the early 70s, Chuck, uh, his heart is not in recording. The, the flood of new material stops. He travels from town to town playing many, 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 many gigs, getting paid in cash, uh, and is an oldies act. Yeah, it's un- unfortunate that that's the way pe- most people remember him. I mean, he effectively stopped recording in 1979. He actually had some pretty decent songs in the 70s. He also had some pretty lousy songs in the 70s, but there are gems on, on those recordings in the uh, late 60s, early 70s uh, that some people have ignored, uh, in part because Chuck never played them in concert. He right. basically struck to with the same format over and over again. Cash and carry routine, you know, going from gig to gig, uh, Hired gun bands on the road, some of which were good, some of which weren't. Uh, you know, noted for abusing his bands on the road if they didn't know Chuck Berry music uh, as well as he did. Um, so he became sort of a bitter figure, and we saw some of that in the movie Hail Hail Rock and Roll. Yeah. Uh, you know, Taylor Hackford's documentary in 1986. So you know, around this time he's being inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, one of the, the first group of inductees. And here is this figure who comes across as not really being all that happy with his life and not really being happy with the way he is being remembered by the uh, many the many artists who uh, you know built on his innovations and in many ways profited much more uh, profoundly from them. Uh, so you know the, the images we have of Chuck Berry aren't all that flattering at the end of his career. Uh, it needs to be said that he was playing a regular gig in St. Louis. Uh, that became quite legendary. When he was on his home turf and playing these residencies in St. Louis, uh, he was quite effective in that setting. It was when he went on the road that things didn't go so well. I I saw a memorable show in Columbia, Missouri, where Johnny Johnson actually joined him on keyboards, and those two had a contentious relationship. Johnson had to sue him to get monies he felt he was owed. I I, I felt honored. That was a good night Mm -hmm. to see those two play together. Uh, But he was infamous for the last 40 years for picking up a band for hire in every town. Uh, No rehearsal, no set list. You just follow me. Um, We wanted to talk to a musician who worked with him under those circumstances. Stephen Gillis, drummer from Chicago, played with Barry at his last show in Chicago. Stephen, many people talk about Chuck being notoriously difficult to deal with if you're backing him as a musician. What was your experience like? Yeah, I, I, (laughs) obviously, that's a, you know, that's what we've all heard. Um, I didn't experience that personally at all. They got him to the venue like just in time so that we could have like a real brief sound check. And uh, we played about a half a tune. Well, before actually, <laughs> before, before we played, uh, he just, he walked in and he said, where's my band? Mm. And actually, I, I really, I thought this is great. This is, these are how, this is how musicians talk to each other. Where's my band? Yeah. So he rolled in, you know, rolled into the stage and we all just kind of circled around him and he was really nice. We shook hands and he had, a, you know, a couple things just to say. He said, you know, my, my hearing is really not well right now or something like that. And, uh, you know, I may turn around and ask you what chord I'm playing. And so we were, all, you know, kind of like, oh, okay, we, you know, we need to pay extra attention here. And, um, but other than that, he just said, you know, just watch when I start and stop a tune. Mm. And, uh, you know, if you do any, if you hear any stories about Chuck and, and his pickup bands, it's like, you got to nail his endings because mm. he may stop the tune at any time. He, you know, he'll, he'll be in the middle of a chorus of a tune and just want to stop. And so, uh, you know, we all had our eyes peeled and 
you have to be right in the moment, right there listening. And, um, and I, you know, I, I saw it coming. I saw he was going to stop tuning. It was an odd spot, kind of. Um, and, uh, you know, he put his foot down and whap, you know, ended the tune. And we did, you know, it went off without a hitch. And he turned around and blew me a kiss, which I wasn't expecting at all. But <laughs> 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 I got really lucky. Those are, did, Incredible. Did, let's back up a second. Uh, Chuck was infamous for demanding payment in cash up front before playing a note on stage. Did, did you see that transaction? Uh, I didn't actually see the transaction, but I know that that transaction occurred, yes. <laughs> what was your perspective on Chuck's music before you played that gig, and did that night change anything for you in terms of your feelings about Chuck Berry? Absolutely. That night didn't change anything. It just I made my living playing music that he inspired or essentially created, so... I just, I just couldn't even believe that I was there playing with him. It was just like such an honor. It, he is American music. He mm. started it. You know, it's like him and Muddy Waters and B.B. King and Buddy Guy. I mean, these guys, we wouldn't have a life or a career or music or anything without these guys. It's just incredible that I had a chance to play with him. We've been talking to Stephen Gillis, co-owner of Transient Sound in Chicago, session drummer of Longstanding in Chicago, played with Chuck Berry at his last Chicago gig in 2011. Stephen, thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. So it's clear that Chuck Berry's influence goes on and on. It has lasted decades, a half century, Jim, uh, influencing, you know, the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles bands of that ilk almost immediately after Chuck Berry came out. But the genres that he has touched on, his songs play in every genre, reggae, country, hip hop, punk, metal, jam bands. They've all adopted Chuck Berry's music as their own. Here are just a few of the artists who have taken inspiration from or covered Chuck Berry's music. Oh, 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 oh,
Oh, that montage is barely scraping the surface, Greg. It is clear that Chuck Berry's music lives on in everything that has followed. In fact, it'll live on well into the future. His his records, let's not forget, are included on the Voyager spacecraft, which is trying to make contact with alien civilizations beyond our galaxy. <laughs> what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to give our report from the South by Southwest Music Conference and uh, play a bunch of bands that uh, made a big impression there on both you and I. Greg, Sound Opinions is produced, as always, by Brendan Banasak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. You say you love me, darling. Please call me on the phone sometime. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You say you love me, darling. Please call me on the phone sometime. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Martin calling from Chelsea, Quebec. My desert island pick is Frank Zappa's Peaches on Regalia. It's a perfect song. Is it rock? Is it jazz? Is it classical? It's all of those and more. But my main reason for picking it is that it's one of the most cheerful instrumentals in existence. If I was stranded on a desert island, I'd want something to lift my spirits, and Peaches on Regalia always does the trick. Thanks very much. Enjoy your show. I'm calling from Downers Grove, Illinois, with my uh, Desert Island jukebox selection, and uh, my selection would be Be Thankful for What You Got by William Devon. You may not have a car at all. Listen to it over and over, and I can't think of a, a better song to have on a desert island because you need to be thankful for what you got. I'm calling to give my reason as to my selection for your Desert Island jukebox. This is Randy Johnson of Chicago, Illinois. I've become an old man who's heard a lot of great music in my life. However, if I was to choose only one song to put on the solar-powered Desert Island jukebox, it would be Paul Simon's Obvious Child. The music would get you to move, perhaps march around the palm trees and dance on the sandy beach. In quieter moments, the lyrics themselves would lead you to contemplate the truth and image of your life and catapult you beyond your interior walls. So in summary, why deny the obvious, child? Thank you very much. Good day. Well, I've been waking up at sunrise. I've been following the light across my room. I watch the night receive the moon of my day. Some people say the sky is just the sky, but I say, why deny the obvious, child? Why deny the obvious, child? 
Hey, Tim and Greg. This is old man Ben here in Los Angeles. And uh, you guys have been on a great run lately. All these great shows recently. It's been spectacular. And I love how it showed real reverence for music of the past. And then you had this band on called String Bean, Soybean, something or other. And uh, uh, I got to say, they didn't seem to have any sense of history about music. They seemed to they compared themselves with Nirvana and Noi and Led Zeppelin. And then they proceeded to uh, play the most mediocre music I've heard in a long time. And I think it comes through that they didn't really seem to have any sense of history of music. They didn't have any respect for artists that came before them because no self-respecting artists would dare say that they're as good as Bud Zeppelin or Nirvana or anything like that. And uh, they're, they're kids, and I get that. So uh, thanks for making me feel super old. Uh, have a good one. Keep up the good work. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.